Thanks for listening to the Tribe Church Podcast. In this episode, you'll hear from some members of our community in what we call Tribe Stories. They're interviews with followers of Jesus here in our church, living in our context, and working to apply the teachings of Jesus to their lives. They serve as living illustrations of discipleship today, and we hope that they encourage you in your journey as well. Enjoy. All right, so... As we did last time, we'll have a Q&A for a tribe story. So Steve, come on up. Um, we'll have a couple of people with mics uh, running up and down the aisles. Um, but please think about, I know that this is a lot to take in, right? And one, one of the reasons why I really, really wanted to s- Steve to kick off sort of the, the work t- topic in this is that it's true that we so seldom connect our work with something holy and with worship. And just like as desperately as we need to embrace the rest of the Sabbath, we need to embrace our work as something holy. Um, and um, so now you see why uh, you know, I'm a fan. Uh, I have sort of over, over the years and decades actually struggled with vocation and um, sort of the connection between and the separation, the tension between the calling of what God made me to be, you know, I'm pretty ADD professionally, you probably noticed if you know this, right? So I'm called to, to do this ministry, and I'm called to build businesses, and I'm called to, to serve the poor, and you know, and it's really complicated, right? So I've been, even, you know, last night I was sort of torturing Steve until he goes, I gotta go to sleep, dude, you know, and, and I'm like, <laughs> Uh, but I'm sure most of us have some sort of tension that way so any questions that you have um, there's one in the back Mauricio Mauricio is my brother from another mother my Chilean exile economist musician friend yes uh, thank you good morning to everybody Uh, what recommendation can you give uh, when you have a a lot of pressure and uh, in terms of uh, the relationship with others who they are not blessed with the, with God so they don't they enter in a very com- conflict way with, with with the other colleagues and you are not able to manage the rage we are humans we produce endorphins and things so how, how what recommendation can you give to me <laughs> when and to others, when you face this huge uh, conflict with other persons, where there is a lot of, of pressure, and uh, um, uh, it's, it's hard. It's hard to don't be angry and other things. Uh, I, I know I, you have to be patient that God is in charge, and he will sort things out. But maybe in the short run, how, how can I help my brother who is working with me, who is helping me, who is building the best of her or him, to develop a company, but we face complex times, discussions, and so on. I'm sorry for the long it's question. It's a very good question, Mauricio, and I wish we could just go for a walk and talk about it more, but I would say two things right here. Uh, some years ago, I was asked to go speak for a weekend retreat for a church called Redeemer Church in New York City on these very same questions, and uh, I... Uh, decided I wanted to bring some new thinking about this because I've been pondering these things for a long time in my life. I thought, I want to just go to a different, newer place to think about these questions now. And I spent a few days 
that summer reading through the, the, the book we call Daniel, the prophecy of Daniel. And it's not like Isaiah or Zechariah, it's really more the story of someone's life with half of it being these perplexing dreams. Um, but we know the story pretty well, don't we? He's in exile, you know, and uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they get drawn into a special school for able young men, and you know, there's a lion's den, and there's a fiery furnace, and there's mysterious dreams at night, and. Um, but I thought that the book actually was unusual in the scripture because it's a, a whole book given to what we could legitimately call the story of a man's vocation of his life in the world. Um, and so I, wanted, I read it, and I read it again, and I read it again, just taking notes and thinking, so what are we to learn from this story, really? Uh, and we have no time to go into the detail of all that, but maybe I would simply say this. Um, the first half of the book, of course, is easier to understand because we do, from being three and four and five-year-olds on, get some idea of what lion's dens are might be about, and we kind of, okay, okay, and even though it seems pretty terrible. But you know, of course, even that one was born of what? There's a very story you just have told, Mauricio. It's about a conflict at work, you know, a backstabbing at work, you know, of jealousies at work, of conflicted, you know, goals and aims at work. That's where the, where the lion's den comes from, actually. Literally, it does. Um, the rest of the book of Daniel <clears throat> is these dreams that have Daniel's own name on them, like he's the dream interpreter, and then all, then all of a sudden, you know, here's a dream for you, Daniel. What's it about? It's actually from God himself to say, this is, this is the world you're in, Daniel. This is what the world is all about. I want you to have understanding of your own moment in history. What happens to Daniel night by night of these dreams, though? He says, the text says, he couldn't sleep anymore. You know, his face was flushed, you know. He didn't know what to do the next day because the dreams were so puzzling to him. The very last word in the whole book of Daniel about Daniel actually are these words, and Daniel was perplexed. <laughs> now you might think, well, that's not so good, is it, really? Not a lot of closure, right? <laughs> but you know what, in my own, you know, wounded heart, I suppose, earnest heart that it is, I've actually seen those as being good words. Because that's the world that I live in. You know, there are, I think there are good questions that are to be asked, and where do we need to work for good answers to be given. But there's a lot of life which just is like, I don't know really. I don't know. I really don't know. You know? And you see the great hero we have in Daniel, the very last thing said about him in the whole of the book is, and he was perplexed. I've seen that as being a good word for me in my life. Because a lot of my life, push and shove as I do day by day, trying to be a man of faith and hope and love, where at the end of the day I think, I don't understand this really. I don't get this. It's perplexing to me really. You know, it isn't that I stop believing in you, O oh Lord. I do believe in you. I do trust in you. I do long for you. I do love you. But I don't understand this, please. I don't really understand this. I know for myself, thinking through day by day life with people in situations where it's not what I want it to be, I do pray with earnestness, Lord God of heaven and earth, May these graces of your spirit be present in my life today, of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. I pray that day by day for myself, you know, mysterious as it is as a prayer, realizing that when all is said and done, there still may be perplexity to what I see and try to make sense of. Even as I long for the kingdom to come. Um, I... 
I'm so blessed by your talk. Thank you so much. Uh, my question is, how do you advise people go about discerning or selecting their vocations in this big yeah. age of opportunity? Uh -huh. You want to go for a long walk? Oh, <laughs> it would be my honor. Uh -huh. At least a cup of tea or something. But, um, mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, I think maybe, maybe, again, we could say a thousand things would be helpful probably, I think, but not because I'm so great, but because there are a thousand good things that could be said. But it's maybe good to understand that the words vocation and calling are literally the same words. So we shouldn't stumble over what's my vocation and then what's my calling. They're literally the very same words. They're Latin and Greek in, in their roots, but they're the same words. So vocation comes from the same word we get vocal from. Think about it for a moment, okay? So vocare uh, is, the, is the deep, deep root of vocation. What's it assuming? Well, that someone's saying something, you know, and that actually you can hear. So, you know, my brother Chris and I have been talking about Ukraine and Russia a lot the last few days, and, and uh, he knows that I'm a great, great student of a man named Václav Havel. Uh, who was the leader of the Czech Czechoslovakia 30-some years ago when it broke away of, over the imploding communist empire. Um, but he said this in countless speeches around the world, that the secret of man is a secret of his responsibility. So the very heart of our humanity as human beings is our ability to respond, our responsibility. So think about that in relationship to what vocation means, because vocation assumes that Someone saying something that I can hear, that I can respond. So to dig into your question a little bit, I mean, I would say that, you know, that for me, work comes out of our vocation. It isn't the same thing as. So Christian is Deb's husband. He's the father of Bella and, and others, you know. He's a friend to some of you and to people in Ukraine. He talks to them all day long right now, you know. Well, his life is bigger than his work. His vocation, a life lived in service to God and love for God in his world, is a bigger idea than his work. His work is an expression of that. It comes out of his sense of vocation, but it isn't the same thing as. I make a distinction in my own thinking. Again, if we had time, we could doodle on you know, napkins on Starbucks tables and things. But I would say occupation and vocation are related words. They're different words, though. That occupation has more to do with, you know, I occupy these responsibilities and relationships along the way of my life. My vocation is a deeper word, though. It's more like the deeper question of who am I and what, why am I in the world? Um, and the occupation accounts for, you know, I'm doing this right now with these people right now. I didn't used to. I may not in the future, you know, but right now my, my, my life is with th these people in this place with these things to care about, really. Um, I would say there are probably a few, two or three good books you could read if you wanted to kind of go that route, you know. One says, I would be, want to be with Jesus, say, why don't you come and see? You know, that would be the, the deepest way to learn. But books are good books. I have, as Christian has some sense of, I have walls in my house filled with books. I do love books, really, you know. Um, so I would say there are probably a few books you could read that would be helpful to you. Um, you want to hear, hear what I would say, just off the, off the cuff here? Um, Well, I'm a great, I've learned a lot from Wendell Berry. You already heard me reference him today. He has a fascinating book 
It's called Hannah Coulter. I'm thinking about you being woman that you are here. Um, you might think, but he's Wendell Berry. How about a book about a woman, really? It's remarkable. I never ever talked to a woman who was, didn't think he gets it. You think, how did he do that? Well, he did, really. It's a story of, of a girl from age little, little on to the end of her life, really. But it's really a look at the nature of life in the world and how she, the choices she makes, choices that come to her unexpected, unwanted, you know, responding to those choices, the situations in her life. It's a deep book, a good book, really. Um, there's a man named Parker Palmer. He has a book called Let Your Life Speak, uh, which is a window into, I think, maybe the deeper reality of the question of vocation. Because what I would say, if I was going to talk to you longer, I would say, well, let me know more about how things seemed to you when you were five. What were you doing when you were five-year-old? And how about when you were 12? I mean, about that those years, and then about 18, and then maybe 25, and 33. And you know, I want to get some sense of the tapestry of your life over time. Because you see, in one sense, it's not true we can do anything. I don't think that's really true. I don't think, I mean, maybe we're forced to by economic, political wrongs in the world to do things we never really wanted to do. That does happen, and that is a tragedy, I would say. It's a terrible, terrible thing. But most of us are in a situation where we get, we're making choices along the way. And, but I would say we're making choices within light of who we are. I'm one of four boys in my family, you know. I thought we were all the same until I got to be, you know, 18 probably. I thought, you are different. You're my brother, though, you know. And I realized that you know, years later, like, we're just different from each other. You know, how that happened? We came from the same place of all things, really. You know, I ate the same table for years and years and years. No? Um, but you see, if she's related to you next to you, <laughs> uh -huh. we have twins, but they're not identical because they are a boy and a girl after all. You'd be surprised if people have asked us, are they identical? I said, no, they are a boy and a girl. <laughs> <laughs> so, so one more book by a guy named Steve Garber called Visions of Vocation. Take a look at it. It's, it's wonderful. One book by another friend of mine named Tom Nelson called Work Matters. Work Matters, which would be a really helpful book, too. So. All right. Let's, uh, let's see if we can get more questions. Yes. James. Hey. Uh, first, thanks for, for your message this morning. Very eloquent, compelling uh, words. So we really appreciate that. Um, since you've been thinking about this for a very long time, I um, wonder if you could talk a little bit about if... Um, as you describe it, the, the notions of kind of sacred and secular and, and vocation and purpose are, can really be coherent in God's plan. Why is it that that's so difficult for us? Why isn't that the default? And why is it that we struggle with that? That's a great question, really. I wish I knew more about you. Well, I, again, I mean, you heard me say, reflect a little bit on Howard E. Butt Jr.'s life. You think, so what was, why was the default at age 20, I think he was at Baylor University, you know, to think that, you know, there was, you know, a call of God and there was a call of his father. Um, you know, three years ago, I was telling Christian this last night that a guy here from, you know, west of Austin, cattle ranch back, background in his family, right, he lives in San Antonio, writes me and says, can I talk to you about my life? He said, I live in San Antonio now, my, I, I got involved in a campus ministry when I was a university student that basically said, you know, if you're really serious about Jesus, you're going to join ministry staff for this university uh, work. Um, and he said, my dad was a little bit disappointed, really, because he always thought that I would be, you know, the next one to raise cattle in, in Texas. And, and I said, well, I, he said, can I talk to you? And I said, well, of course. And 
we talked for once a month for hours, really, for a couple, two or three years or so. I never ever said to him, you know, that he shouldn't be a campus ministry person at the university, you know. Never ever said that to him. I said, I, I have no word from the Lord like that for you. But I want to make sure that if you're choosing against your family business, you're doing so for the best reasons, for, right, the good, for good reasons. You're not doing so because of a dualism. Not doing so because of a sacred, secular split in your life. That somehow the call of God would, would be here. The other one's just, you know, business after all. I've got a friend I saw this week at the, the Lenten service in our church in Washington. And I've known him for years and years. We used to go for lunch a lot together. And he has, he, he buys patents. He sort of bets on patents is his business. He makes a fortune some years and goes into, you know, deep debt other years. And, but he kind of roller coasters his way through the economy and betting on ideas people have. And one day we were having lunch. He said, you know, I like to talk to you, Steve. I said, I have no idea. And he said, well, you think that what I do matters. I said, well, I do. And he said, but you know, I've been part of the church and the parachurch my whole life, really. And, and you know what I, am, what I am to both church and parachurch? I'm a checkbook. They just want to make sure that I walk into the room before it's all over that night because somebody has to pay for it. You know? And he says, like, but you actually think that the work I do is important. That it matters to God and the world. You ask, you ask questions about how hard it was this year, you know, whether I didn't do well this year, and you're actually interested in the work I do, that the work itself matters, actually. And uh, I would just say, my friend, I mean, that the dualism, the default is pretty deep on the other side, right? All over the world. I have had the, the gift of traveling all over the world, meeting Christians in Asia and Africa and Europe and, you know, all over, really. And this is, the, this is a problem the church has all over the world. We, our default is dualism. There's a book that Christian, this Seamless Life book that he mentioned earlier, there's an essay in it called Our Disposition to Dualism. And we are. We, we are disposed to think as if somehow some things God cares about, other things he doesn't care about that much, like cooking pots, for example. And uh, I think we have to work our way into a theological vision that can account for what I would call common grace and common good. We could talk more about it. I, it's a really, really good question. Can I follow up with one uh, question? Because I know the work that you do. And I think there's so much discussion in, in America, in the world, but America specifically, about um, sort of the dark side of capitalism. And um, you do some work with the Mars Corporation, imagining how this dark side can be mm -hmm. yeah. um, transformed. Can you tell us just a little bit more about it? I know that you didn't mention it during the talk. Mm -hmm. All right. I think they make, I don't know, is it Skittles and Waco? Something like that. Um, they make stuff people all over the world, of course. The, it's, a, it's like the Butt family. It's a family-owned company, a Mars family, for 100 years now. A little bit, you know, like the Butt family in that sense, too. The Butt's family a little bit older, 120 years, I guess. Um, but, uh, but they make M&Ms, of all things, you know. And 15 years ago, I went into a breakfast. In some ways, Christian, it's a good story for a pastor to think about, because my pastor of my church wrote me a little note one morning and said, a guy came to see me today. Would you please talk to him? And uh, the story he told was that he had been worshiping with, with his family in our church for six months. Finally came to see the pastor and said, if all this is true, what's it mean for when I go to work in the, on Monday? And uh, 
at that point, he was a very, very highly placed person at this Central Intelligence Agency. Um, and this was the post 9-11 messy, messy moment in history that we've been living in. You know, lots of intractable, complex, hard things to think through. And he was very responsible for how the U.S. responded to much of that. And to try to connect in many ways the Apostles' Creed with Monday at the CIA. And uh, we began to meet together, and uh, I'll just cut to the chase here. He didn't stay there forever, uh, but he moved across town to the Mars Corporation, which is headquartered in McLean, Virginia. Uh, and about three months into his new tenure there, he said, would you have breakfast with me and my, my, my new colleague? He's the chief economist for the Mars Corporation, and he's here from Europe, and I'd love you guys to meet each other. So we had breakfast together, and. Basically, the question of the morning was asked by one of the three Mars siblings who own the whole shebang, um, how much money should we make this year? And I said to them, but why are you asking this question? Isn't that obvious? Like, all the money you possibly can make? Wouldn't that be the easy answer? And he said, no. He said One of the owners had said to him as the chief economist, if we take everything in here, then somebody along the way gets screwed. We have to think through how we're doing this. Now, they are like the richest people in Virginia and Pennsylvania and other places too. I mean, the Mars family sells a lot of M&Ms to the world, you know, billions upon billions of M&Ms, really. And they make a dollar each one, I think, probably, you know. So they're very, very, I mean, they have not, this is not a new, new face to socialism. Don't hear it that way. This is about like real billions of dollars we're talking about. Um, but for the next, you know, weeks and months, we began to talk through what we named the economics of mutuality, which was really a fundamental rethinking of the nature of economic life and of business life. To put it in Mars's terms, it was, if, you want, if you're a family-owned company and you actually want to keep making money into the future, the question, we decided there were other questions you had to ask than simply if you made the most money we can this quarter. If you want to sustain profitability, you'd have to ask other questions. It's a big thing to say right now, very quickly, but I would say that was the idea. Seven years into this project, the decision was made to partner with Oxford University's business school called the Said School to teach this new paradigm to MBA students at Oxford. Uh, and uh, there have been books written about it now. Uh, one called Completing Capitalism, not destroying capitalism, not rejecting, but completing capitalism, the subtitle being Heal Business to Heal the World. And uh, um, so I'm deeply involved in this project now and have been for more and more so as the years have passed. And uh, my question has been to th help them rethink what the idea of vocation means. If this is, if we're going to actually rethink the business of business, again, not to say, you know, we begin giving M&Ms out to the world with a nice, happy smile on our faces. But to say, how do we actually continue to make billions of dollars next year, but realize that we want to sustain profitability over time? And if you, to put it very, you know, plainly, simply, if Mars didn't actually care about cocoa trees in West Africa, it just wouldn't be there, you know, in 25 years. You know, it isn't sort of a small thing to say, well, that's, that's green talking, isn't it? That's sort of green spin talking, isn't it? That's corporate social responsibility talking. There's nothing about green spin or CSR at all in this project. That's a fundamental, like, no, we don't think that way. We don't talk that way. It's more to ask other questions. I took them to meet this man, Wendell Berry, some years ago, the, these executives from Mars and his farm in Kentucky. 
And he said to us at the end of the day, you know, if you want to make money for a year, you ask certain questions, don't you? But if you want to make money for 100 years, you have to ask other questions. And that, this project is really a more of a 100-year project we're on to rethink how business works in the world. And it has involved people you know, all over the world who were serious about this, who were serious business people. I had lunch yesterday with a woman here in Austin. You know, uh, She makes pro a project product that you guys probably actually have eaten because it's sold in the HEBs and central markets of the world. But she had this great idea some years ago. And you know, she took part in a, an executive ed course this fall that I, I was teaching in for at, at the business school at Oxford, uh, simply because she's, she's persuaded, in fact, that her own kingdom loyalties require her to ask a deeper set of questions about the business of business. What's so, the product? <laughs> it's called Queso Mama. Hmm. Yes, that is a good product. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I think we had, did we have Nick? Yeah, right there. Uh, my question is, you know, I'm thinking through <clears throat> the uh, Israelites in Egypt building bricks and making bricks, and that's their whole, you know, form of, of life and occupation slash slavery, you know, that type of thing, and then they get freed and uh, wander in the desert, and that was a time, a, a time in generation, a generational time, right? Um, but then kind of fast forward, so I'm thinking through not just me as an individual, but collective. Uh, right now, there's something going on called the Great Resignation, where people are, you know, sick of pandemic, work from home, and thinking through what is my next phase. It's of own life. more polite version of take this job and shove it. Yeah, yeah. Uh. <laughs> and so, my question to you is, as you've maybe thought through this, what do you see where God is taking people, and where are we going through this work from home pandemic, Great Resignation? How do you see God working through it? Well, on one hand, I don't have any idea, you know, because I'm just looking at a world like you are through a glass darkly, you know, and probably with Daniel, you know, when, when all is said and done, I will be perplexed about what it all is and what it means and, you know, um, but uh, I do think, I mean, I, there's a lot of things that could be said about this, but um, because I'm much, very much involved in this project with the Mars Corporation and rethinking business and economic life. I've been thinking some about some cities in America that w once were but no longer are, uh, like Detroit and Pittsburgh, for example. They're kind of far away from the Southwest and uh, as here in and Texas, but both industrial giant cities for America. When I was a boy, basically the idea was if you, know, you put your finger to the wind and judging how it was going in, D in Detroit with the big three, America was either well or not very well, how the big three did. You know. Pittsburgh, of course, was the Steelers, and the Steeler Nation was the home of industrial capital of America in many ways. But, you know, over time, even if we would say Henry Ford didn't want to do a bad thing in the world, he made cars available to, you know, to you and to me and to our great-grandparents, really. But over time, the assembly line that he and others created made it be that if you were an ordinary person in Detroit, you knew you didn't want to buy a Monday or Friday car. That was what the ordinary citizens of Detroit understood about the cars their neighbors made. Don't buy a Monday car or Friday car because you see the weekend is in between. And on Friday, because I hate my job, I hate my work, I don't, I've sort of checked out by Friday and so Friday cars were seen to be not good cars to buy. 
Weekend was, I lived for the weekend, you know, Monday, back from the weekend, bummer that it is. I don't make good cars on Monday either. So the people in Detroit knew if you wanted to buy a good car, buy a Wednesday serial number. Well, you can't keep doing that forever, you know? And finally people say, I think I'll buy a Toyota this year instead. Um, because instead we say, well, why would I buy a car that's not going to be a well-made car, really? And it, you, can't, you can't push away against, I would say, God's world, his ways in the world forever without there being consequences. You know, chickens do come home to roost. In Pittsburgh, where I lived for a few years, you know, it was once, once upon a time, like the big, you know, towers belched for smoke day and night for, you know, 30, 365 days a year, really. And uh, great fortunes were made. But in some ways, the, the way labor or work was understood by both the owners and those who worked for them, the labor steel workers, was, was not healthy. You know? And in some ways, their go for the jugular ways to relate to each other eventually killed steel in Pittsburgh. Uh, still still being made in the world, but not in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, really. And you can't, you know, I would say you can't go against the grain of God's world forever and not feel the cut and the tension and the pushback because it just doesn't work that way. Um, so, you know, what have we done in the 21st century? You know, making work be a certain kind of a work, cubicle work, you know, as it so often is. And, you know, I don't see anybody that I want to see very much part of the day and, you know, kind of a work which I don't, there isn't, I used very passingly or passing image of, you know, work as it we want it to be, you know, in what I was saying this morning. I talked about the words creativity and responsibility. I think there's something deep in us as human beings, made in the image of God, that wants to do work that somehow is an expression of both creativity and responsibility. And we don't get to work that way, it isn't very interesting to us. We may work because we have to work, but in some ways my heart no longer is here. My heart is on Saturday morning going out fishing with my buddies. You know, that's why I live my life, is to, for the weekend. I don't, live, I don't do, my work is not what I care about because there's nothing about this that calls me to care about it. And I think in some ways, I mean, that there's probably going to have to be a, a rethinking about all this because people can't resign forever and not work in the world. You know, so what the great resignation means in terms of the economy is in my mind kind of a mystery right now. I mean, you can, unless you are a trust fund kid, you know, you have to work someday, somehow, somewhere, really. You know? So, but I do think for people in this room who are both the employed and the employers, it's a good question to ask. You know, how would I work to create a workplace where both creativity and responsibility are written into the very nature and meaning of the work? Because there, I mean, we, we respond to that. We want to work like that. We just do, I would say. We're, from the very beginning of time, you know, avad, avodah, that's the word in Genesis 1, really. We were made to work. God is a worker, you know? And he worked and he worked and every day said, and it was good, and it was good, really. The work that he did. And we were called to be in his image to work in the world. It isn't the bad, the work didn't begin with the curse. It doesn't begin in Genesis 3, it begins in Genesis 1. It's really important to understand that, people. You know, it isn't a curse to work. It's a good thing to work. But when we so have distorted the work of work in a way which, which tears away both creativity and responsibility, it's very interesting to us. Let me do it because I want to put bread on the table for my family, but I hate my job. Take this job and shove it. I ain't working here no more. A lot more could be said. It's a searching question, and I'm perplexed by it, too. Steve, 
You've been a blessing in my life. Today you've been a blessing to my favorite group of people in the whole world. We thank you. We thank you. <laughs> <laughs>